Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today is executive art director Mike Pekovich. Hey, Ed. Now, quick note here. About an hour ago, I received a message from a supposedly sick Matt Kenny. Yeah, I've, where's Matt? Well, I, I find his excuse of sickness dubious at best. Uh, you be the judge, Mike. Uh, let's roll the tape on the uh, message I just received. Hey, Ed, it's Matt. I know we're supposed to do a podcast today, but I'm not going to make it into work. I'm just really feeling under the weather. I hope that's all right. Talk to you soon. Well, well, well. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> um, well, if you're going to be sick, it sounds like you picked the right place to be sick, wherever that was. Quick question. Do we forward this to editor Tom McKenna? Oh, most definitely, yes. Oh, yes. Matt, you're full of an unpleasant brown substance, as my father would say. <laughs> um, anyhow, so Matt's not here, so it's just... Uh, me and Mike's chowderheads talking into a couple of microphones. Yeah, feel better, Matt. Deal with it. All right. So uh, if you like this podcast, uh, make sure you spread the word to your fellow woodworkers. Stop by our iTunes page. Leave a comment, maybe even a sweet five-star rating if you feel we merit it. And uh, you can also stop by our iHeartRadio page. Just search for Shop Talk Live. So a little segue topic for today. Uh, I got an interesting email from a guy by the name of Cal, a a uh, fine woodworking reader and a Shop Talk Live subscriber. And Cal writes, Just finished listening to your latest show and really enjoyed it. In regards to, this, in regards to the speed tenon, when I viewed the video the first time you aired it a couple of years back, I was really impressed with the technique. I, too, had some concerns about its safety. I recently submitted a patent for a jig that uses this technique. Hopefully, it will address some of the safety issues, and it makes dado sizing a lot easier. I invite you to view a video... This is a shameless plug for his own product. It is. It's, I'm not. No, no. I'm, I'm, forget it, Cal. I'm going on to the first question. I jest. Um, <laughs> I invite you to view a video on my website, easydado.com. That's e, letter E, letter Z, dado, D-A-D-O dot com. This was the first time that I attempted to file a patent and will probably never do it again due to the overwhelming costs. My biggest wish is to make enough on plans to recoup my investments. So okay, there's a lot of red flags here. So when I when you first sent me this email and I read this, oh wait, what's the speed tenon? First of all, just remindful. Speed tenon. Um, you go up to a regular table saw blade with a crosscut sled. Uh, I mean a miter gauge, and you make a, the shoulder cut, and then you sort of zip the workpiece back and forth across the blade to uh, zip out a really quick tenon. Little bits of you're taking yep. away little bits of material with the side of the blade, basically. Yes, the side of the teeth. So okay, so number one. Um, this, uh, what Cal wrote in, the red flags for me were number one, speed tenon. That's a red flag to begin with. And now we're talking about patenting the speed tenon, which is number two. And then there's a website, easydato.com. That's red flag number three. And then anything to do with recouping any sort of cost in regard to woodworking, that's a red flag number four. So I looked at this website with great skepticism. Okay. However. <laughs> oh, okay, because I didn't know where you are going with this. It's like, oh, uh, should we not have brought this up? <laughs> However, this, this thing is tremendously awesome. Cal, um, you hit it out of the park here. Let me, let me describe this. We'll, hopefully, we're going to throw a link up on our website. I think we'll do Cal a favor and do that. Cal came up with a, it looks like a very simple uh, crosscut sled, shop-made crosscut sled. Looks pretty cool. 
Then he does this little thing where he loosens up a knob and half looks like half of the crosscut sled sort of slides over and opens up the, the width of the blade slot. So I thought, okay, that's, that's kind of strange. Um, but what this somehow allows you to do as you move forward through the cut, you can sort of slide this crosscut sled back and back forth. And left and right, left and right. Really precisely, yeah. like yeah. to stopped increments. So basically there's this little stop on the end of the crosscut sled where he sticks in a piece of wood and then Spacer. tightens the thing down. Yeah. So, okay. And then you put your workpiece in, you clamp it to the fence of the crosscut sled. Um, you make one cut, you pull it back, you slide the crosscut sled to its other stop Make the other a second shoulder. cut. Yep. So now we have a pair of cuts which define the shoulders. Yeah. Now he advances the workpiece through the cut, doing the zippy back and forth. And in essence, it creates sort of a, I guess, a dado or a notch in the board of a really precise width. A safer speed tenon. It Ooh, is. That's a good head. So in this case, it's, yeah, so I would call it a, a safer speed dado. Um, oh, sorry, safer speed. Oh, darn it. My alliteration just fell apart. You're right. Um, <laughs> but it's, he also had a couple of like uh, cam clamps, I noticed. And I mean, it, the whole thing is ingenious. Yes. It's, it works. It seems to work beautifully. Yeah. So you were impressed by this as well. I thought it was awesome. Yes. I mean, it's, it's the perfect. Uh, if you looked up woodworking jig in the dictionary, um, this is one of the things that you should see. <laughs> it's like, it's really cool. Yes. Um, so who knows what will happen with Cal, but. Um, I say we throw him a bone and we post the video in the blog uh, for this episode. And, uh, you know, who knows? I don't know. It's, it's, um, I think it's pretty neat. I wonder what it costs to patent something. I don't he know. Mentioned that. But I did look at the, at the bottom of the website. Cal is offering plans along with some hardware kits. You know, those little star knobs and the yep. T-tracks that are hard to come by. Or you have to order, you know, five different things from Rockler. So it looks like he's selling an accumulation of the necessary hardware along with the plan. I forget what it was. Was it like 40 bucks or something like that? What's cool about it is if you're only making a couple of dados on a project, um, it's kind of a pain in the butt to have to go and like, all right, now I'm going to take out my, you know, my crosscut blade. I'm going to put on my dado set and this, that, and the other thing. It's like you're using the blade that's already on your saw. Yes. So kind of neat. Yeah. So good job, Cal. Job well done. Yes. All right. First question of the week. It comes from John who writes, I've almost finished building the workbench that Lon Schleining provided plans for in Fine Woodworking and his book. Uh, I'm referring to the Essential Workbench. It has a large end vise and front vise. I'm considering lining the vise jaw faces with leather. What are the pros and cons of lining a vise jaw with leather? If it's a good thing, then can you recommend which type of leather and a source? Also, what is the best way to attach it? I would be a little hesitant to smear glue all over my nice wooden vise faces in case the leather did not work out and had to be removed later. Um, by the way, the, the bench that he's referring to, Launch Lining's Essential Workbench, was um, one of the uh, inspirations for the not-so-big workbench uh, that I did. So I wanted to give uh, Launch Lining a, a hat tip there. Yeah, it's a great bench. Um, so leather jaws on your, on your vise. What's up? Well, um... Actually, one of our uh, contributing editors, Garrett Hack, he's got a leather-lined outside jaw, I believe, on his front vise yep. of his workbench. Um, I certainly wouldn't put leather on the inside jaw, especially if that inside jaw also happened to be the apron, the front apron of your workbench, um, because then, in essence, what you're doing is you're creating an outset, the thickness of that leather pad from the rest of the apron, and it's going to sort of, um, it's going to compromise the utility of that 
vice in conjunction with the apron where a lot of times you can clamp long work pieces to it while you're planing and that kind of stuff. Outside jaw, I don't have a problem with it. I've never done that. Have you ever glued leather to your I have glued vice? leather, not to my vice, but I've glued leather um, to various things in woodworking projects. And, uh, and John Tetro does it as well. And both of us just use regular yellow PVA wood glue. Okay. And it works fine. Um, the, uh, however his, uh, so but he brought up this idea about what if I want to remove it? Yes. And I thought two things. One is if you want to be really anal retentive, you could use that bottled hide glue that tight bond sells. Cause then you could just heat it up with an iron and peel it away. Oh yeah. And card scrape the surface of your vice jaw. But what's the big deal if you're only putting it on the outside jaw, you know, either a, you just unscrew it and pop in a new, you know, 12 inch long jaw, big whoop. Yes. Or just resaw off the leather pad. And then just, you know, remill that one face flat and reattach it. No big deal. No, that sounds fine. I've never done it. Ideally, your vice jaws should be pretty parallel so that as you're applying pressure, you're not denting. There's no corner that's digging in or anything. I do keep a scrap of suede around um, or split leather. So if I'm clamping in a piece which has already been finished, let's say I'm routing hinges for a door or something, the door has already been finished, I'll just slip the leather in place and pinch the door in between it just to give it that little extra padding. That works out pretty well too. I, I will say, he asks uh, what type of leather you should be using and where do you get it and this, that, and the other thing. Um, I do know, so the, a lot of the leather that I've used, for example, uh, in my humidors that, that I build from time to time, I, I put in a little center divider. So if you're storing shorter cigars, you have a, you've have you now made the compartment. Instead of one compartment, it's two smaller oh, yes. compartments. Okay, so you can remove that little guy. Right. And on the end grain, on uh, those little divider pieces, I glue on little leather pads, and then I cover them with uh, mink oil because it's going to be in a humid environment. Oh. Um, and that leather I get actually from a craft store. I get, I get it from Michael's, actually. and But it's a softer leather. The What I noticed on Garrett's, uh, bench when I've been up there is he's got he's got like a pretty thick it's probably an eighth inch to a quarter inch thick piece of you know tough leather yes it's not soft stuff and I, I don't know exactly where you get that but as far as what kind of leather you're looking for something that's pretty tough yes um, and smooth it's not going to have like an, a pressed in grain to it or something like that right uh, so there you go all right so moving on to Owen who writes after dabbling for a few years I've finally picked up woodworking as a hobby in earnest I just completed my first big project, Matt Berger's mission-style bed. It turned out great, but when finishing the bed, my need for some hand tools became apparent. Machine marks are everywhere. It's good enough for my first project, but in the future, I want to fix this issue. What basic essential hand tools would you recommend getting first? Also, any recommendations for video or written tutorials or techniques for using them? All right, I know you have a couple of... Um, well, actually, there's one very simple tool that you often tell people yes. to make your first hand tool. Um, radial arm saw. Claw hammer. <laughs> um, so what is it? Well, okay. Owen, oh, great question, and good job just jumping into the craft. You picked a good project to jump in on. And unfortunately, that is a pretty common rude awakening for uh, folks just getting into the craft. We get everything together. The joints are fitting pretty good. And, man, we just can't wait to glue this thing up. Well, um, typically it's a little bit easier to get your surface prep done before you glue everything together. 
Um, we always, you know, the, the question is, how do you get into nooks and crannies to sand all the machi- machine marks and mill marks Don't out? Don't have nooks and crannies to get into. Yeah, do it before they become a nook or cranny. So, um, By the way, have you ever tried sanding through jointer marks? Sanding through? Or, or planar marks? or I mean, forget it. It would take you forever. Yeah, you can do it. I mean... You um, can do it, but I mean... There's an easier way. I spent many years doing that. Oh, it's called God. it's called hundred grit sandpaper. Sure? Yeah, and that's the thing, Owen. Is hand tools are awesome. Um, surface prep you can speed things up, and it's certainly a lot funner than sanding. But really, I think the first hand tool you should get really familiar with as it relates to surface prep is sandpaper. Uh, learn how to use it. Work through the grits. Don't skip grits. Um, the uh, common mistakes are you want to start finer than you actually should because you don't want to put these heavy scratches in that you'll have to get rid of later. Actually, that very first grit of sandpaper use, I recommend, you know, if you're starting to get rid of machine and mill marks, start with 100 grit, maybe even 80 grit if it's nasty. And what that sandpaper is doing is not necessarily um, smoothing. What that is doing is that's getting rid of mill marks for you. Um, The subsequent grits of sandpaper are just refining that scratch pattern smoother and smoother with finer smaller grits. and smaller yeah. scratch patterns so say, say start you know 100 grit maybe go 120 150 maybe 180 220 320 400 600 and there you go all the way through 48,000 to f- <laughs> so yes yeah, so um it's very expensive paper by the way Owen. yeah so uh sanding um, as much as you need to, as smooth as you can before gluing up really, really helps with the problems that you encountered. Um, okay, now let's say I've had enough sanding. Um, I'm tired wearing dust masks, breathing all this dusty air and uh, wearing out my elbows with a sanding block. Um, first hand tool I'd recommend is a card scraper. Uh, the good thing about a card scraper is you can cut through mill marks and machine marks um, and get to a relatively smooth surface that then maybe you can pick up from there with, say, 220 grit mm-hmm. and go from there. So you've alleviated a lot of sanding. So link number one, because he asked for uh, you know, suggested content to learn the stuff, is if you go to finalworking.com, there's a video featuring Mike, and it's called How to Sharpen a Card Scraper. Yeah, give it a shot. Really simple tool. Here's the good thing about a card scraper. When it's really sharp, it takes shavings almost like a hand plane. When it's dull... It just kind of doesn't do anything. Take some dust. A little bit of dust, yeah. Yeah, a hand plane will leave that just a glass smooth surface when it's really sharp. When it's not so sharp, <laughs> you're going to get into a lot of trouble uh, with tear out and stuff. So a hand plane can do a lot of damage until you get up and running with it, which is why I recommend uh, get comfortable sandpaper first, card, uh, card scraper. Go ahead and move on up to a hand plane. They're awesome tools. Um, and that from there, man, the sky's the limit. So, and even once you get up and running with hand planes, you're still going to run over some grain with some knots or reversing grain, get a little tear out. Um, a card scraper will take care of that for you as well. So, and they're, they're um, speaking of uh, hand plane irons and chisels as well. There's this sort of fear about. Um, learning how to sharpen them properly. Yes. Um, there's a million videos and articles on fine woodworking about sharpening and honing. Um, so that's easy. But I was going to say, uh, regarding chisels, I was going to make a recommendation because I, I went out and um, I scored a set, a four chisel set and a leather roll of those the new, well, newer uh, Stanley Sweethearts. Oh, nice. Which are modeled after 
the chisels they made, I don't know, probably about a century ago. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're very, you know, moderately priced. Um, and they're great. They're fantastic. Um, you know, I mean, you could, you could go with the Cadillac, which is probably like a Lee Nielsen or something, but those are like 55 bucks a pop. And just then, for one chisel. Sure, and then you you can actually go up beyond that, whether you're talking about Japanese chisels or hand-forged mm-hmm. chisels. But you're right. I think to your point, Ed, before you, you jump too far into the deep end with really expensive tools, buy some moderate price tools or even used tools and learn how to sharpen on tools that you're not afraid of to mess up. There you go. All right. Well, I say we head into our first segment of the day, and that's going to be Smooth moves. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Where we cop to our most boneheaded and bogus shop mistakes. <laughs> um, who's going first? Go ahead. Eh? All right. Uh, well, here's the deal. Uh, some of you may have noticed uh, with the publication of all the new online extras that go with the latest issue, which is 245, a video on pocket hole joinery basics featuring our friend Asa Christiana. Yes. So I produced that video. We've taken a little bit of heat by talking about pocket holes and all right can i just uh, and uh, let me address that first (laughs) because i was kind of one of those people that poo-pooed pocket holes completely too like whatever get out of here loser um but it's 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 an instance of uh you know the right tool for the job i mean if you're building cabinet boxes for a built-in or or even for a kitchen holy cow it is so fast and so easy and really solid yes um i'm totally won over. I love the uh, the variety of pocket screw jigs. And I'm not, you know, saying that to, I don't know, try and get advertising from Craig or something. Um, I, I believe it because actually, um, truth be told, the uh, the cabinet that was built by Asa in that video, um, I, I happened to need a cabinet in a bathroom remodel I'm doing at my house. So that's actually where it's going. So I wouldn't put a piece of junk in my own bathroom. Okay, so the pocket screws are not your smooth move. So, no, the smooth move is uh, we, get, we get to the point in the video where we're clamping on the face frame, the style. The first style gets clamped on, right? And then okay. we're going to screw it in. Like the pocket screw holes are already drilled. We've got the clamps on. We're, we screw in the first style. And I start thinking to myself, I'm running the camera. I start thinking to myself, hmm, probably should have had a call in there, shouldn't we? And the minute Asa takes off the clamps, it's like, ooh, there's like four nasty marks all over that thing. Uh, so oh, just from the clamps themselves. From the clamp yeah. heads. And so it's sub, you know, subsequently, we, I said, all right, Asa, we need a line about using calls. Like, oh, by the way, it's a good idea to use calls. <laughs> so uh, the repair to that smooth move, here's a tip, yes. is I just took it home and I took a washcloth and moistened it lightly with a little bit of water and took an iron uh. about halfway up. I put the moist cloth over the spot that had the marred dents and I put the iron on it and that lifted up the wood fibers. I re-sanded it a little bit and fine. There's, you can kind of tell there's something there, but yes. a lot better. Oh, great tip with the iron. Yeah. Anytime you have dents in the wood or anything like Steam that. Steam them out. Yeah. Very cool. So that's my smooth move. Okay. Well, and you can kind of blame that on Asa. That's Asa's smooth move. <sighs> yeah. I'm pretty I sure I think I will. Is. And he's not here right now to he's defend not. himself. It's okay. So Asa. that was Asa's job, fault. Bob. Good job. Loser. <laughs> Anyhow. Well, um, this smooth move, uh, coincidentally, actually sort of goes back to Owen's question about uh, surface prep, and and we talked about getting sharp. Well, I'm working on um, this double-wide dresser, and it's it's not a small piece, and I don't have a lot of open floor 
space in my shop. So the one sort of open floor space I have is sort of right in front of my cabinet where my sharpening supplies are. So this little dresser case has been living in front of my sharpening area. And which means, unfortunately, I haven't been doing as much sharpening as I Mm. normally do. I sort of got out of my routine. You know, it's just that one extra layer of, ooh, that's kind of a pain to have to reach over this dresser or, God forbid, move it out of the way to get my sharpening gear out. Yeah, it's sharp enough. So, you know, I I struggled. Okay, pull out my four. This is pretty sharp. This is getting kind of dull. I'll pull out my number five. This is, like, pretty sharp. Oh, let me pull out my old Stanley number four because I think I sharpened this a couple months ago, but I never used this plane. So this is probably pretty sharp. Next thing I know, I've got, like, four or five hand planes out on my workbench. And I'm like choosing between them, just trying to find a which blade one happens to be sharp, which is really sharp. That's lame. That's, so it's like, ah! So I finally stopped what I was doing. I moved the dresser out of the way. I got my little mobile sharpening supply thing. I got a nice piece of melamine and threw it on my bench top because I don't normally sharpen there. And it, and and I spent the next 45 minutes sharpening almost every hand plane I own. So my smooth move is, Mike, why did that take so long? Because once they were sharp, woo, oh, holy yeah. cow, you know, the shavings are flying. They're like floating up to the ceiling. You know, it, it's like this raised just a, glorious. I have a question about your shop and this big piece of furniture. Yes. Um, so you have an insulated garage shop and you have like a little propane heater in there, right? Yes. Do you... Uh, so if you if you're storing a big piece of furniture like that out there for you know a month or whatever while you're working on it, yeah. do you leave the heat on all the time at least to keep it at a constant at least like 55 degrees or something? Yes, you do. Um, yeah, and it's not so much for the piece of furniture because if it gets a little bit cold, it's not really going to affect the humidity in the shop okay. all that much. Like glues um, or glues. Um, I don't like my tools getting cold. Hmm. Um, it's uncomfortable with cast iron or or table saw tops because if you happen to get a warm, yeah, I know wet, rainy day, yeah, and then all of a sudden it like one year in February we had this weird February thaw where it went from like five degrees to like sixty degrees in one day, and I came out to my shop and every cast iron surface before my shop was heated was covered in condensation yeah it's like where did this come from i was looking at the ceiling i thought i had some burst pipes it's just that that heat differential so if you have rusty tools in your shop it's it's probably more to do with temperature differentiation as opposed to really radical moisture content problems um so anyway i keep i always keep the shop you know to a minimum of 50 degrees if i'm not going to be out there on a regular basis and if i'm out there every day which for the most part, I am. Um, I keep it about 60 degrees. You're in your shop every day? Yes, I am. Oh, man. <laughs> I wish I didn't have a three-year-old. <laughs> it's like, whenever I go in the shop, um, it's always very harried. Yeah, and, I know. And like, and then yes. my daughter starts crying, and my wife is like, Ed, what are you doing? <laughs> are you coming up? I'm cooking dinner alone. It's yeah. like, ugh. Yeah, I was talking way back when, when my kids were, were tiny, I was talking to Kelly Mailer, who's a great woodworker and teacher, and I was asking him, I said, how do you find time to work and be productive if you only work in like half hour increments? Right. That's he just, exactly what it he is. He just stared at me like, what are you talking about? He said, he says, well, usually when I go in my shop, it kind of takes me 
a couple hours before I really get productive, get productive and get moving. And he just, just thought, you know, woodworking 15 minutes at a time. He has no children. How's that even possible? But as as you know, you make it work. And I think a a lot of our uh, readers and and (laughs) podcast (laughs) listeners, you know, every minute in the shop is sort of a precious commodity. Um, actually I should give a hat tip to my wife cause she was nice enough to, um, as a gift, she had all the old cabinets that were built in all painted, primed and painted for me. Wow. So they're all nice and bright wow. white. And I thought that was kind of nice. Uh, anyhow, uh, next question. Let's move on to David who writes, cool. my table saw has a riving knife, which I believe is as do all of you, an essential safety feature in order to function properly. The knife needs to be about the same thickness as the blade curve. I've been using a Freud thin curve combination blade, and I often experience binding of the riving knife with the thinner blade. This can, this can require much more force to feed the stock and is obviously a bad situation. I've not read anything on this topic. Have you any sage comments? I'm about to pull the trigger on a new blade. Were I to have my standard riving knife ground down to allow more play in the narrow kerf, would it perform as well from a safety standpoint uh, with a standard kerf blade? Um... So I, I was telling you, Mike, that I've certainly experienced this on my, uh, on my table saw. You're using a thin curve blade, but your riving knife is slightly thicker because it's meant to operate with a standard curve closer to an eighth of an inch. Yes. So that, um, you know, you're opening up a thin curve as the, <clears throat> as you pass the stock, you know, through the blade and then it hits that, um, that thicker riving knife. And now it's like a pry bar, like, and yes. you're working harder. Um, so what's the deal here? Well, um, I believe at least some manufacturers offer a riving knife specifically thinned up um, to match a thin curved blade. Here's my question. Is is the riving knife itself as wide as the blade or as you're making this cut, say in the center of a board, you're ripping a board in, in two, is the board closing up behind the blade and pinching the riving knife? So that's that's kind of my first question. And if that is the case, then I would recommend uh, changing up your routine just a little bit in that really I hate to do any sort of um, ripping on the table saw where I'm removing a great deal of weight. So let's say I've got a six-inch wide board and I need to go turn that into two three-inch wide boards. I'd never do that on my table saw mm-hmm. because you're releasing so much stress and that, that board is really likely to close up on the back end of the blade. Um and yeah, a riving knife will sort of help keep it from pinching it, but you know he does. By the way, I should I should say that David, because uh, I edited his question a little okay. bit. Uh, he does. He learned from us on the podcast yes. this whole idea of using the bandsaw first and oh, then just good job, nibbling David. away. Yeah, so he is doing that right. Okay. So then, if the problem is is that um, yeah, so if you have just a, a narrow piece of waste on the outside, even if it wants to come over, it's not going to pinch enough. So it sounds like. The, the blade itself is maybe pressing the workpiece between the, the riving knife and, and the right. fence. Um, yeah, it sounds like the riving knife is maybe too thick. And I would say if you can't get a thin one, um, just, use a, just use a regular width blade on there. Use an eighth-inch blade. Or could Keep he, it nice uh, and sharp. Could he just make a, um, his own you know, plywood table saw throat plate? And then glue in his own little wooden Got your splitter. Little splitter in there. That's not too bad. You you lose the benefit of the riving knife going up and down yeah. with the blade and keeping that really tight clearance to the back of it. But um, it's certainly a good solution. It's especially a good solution if you 
have a table saw without a riving knife, definitely get a splitter in your throw yeah. plate. That's a that's a great idea. Yep. All right. Uh, now we're going to move on to a uh, well guy who sent in a few questions in the past, Prashun, uh, who writes. I am making a bench like the one attached for my neighbor. Uh, so he sent us a photograph of this bench. It's a waterfall-style bench where the grain carries over the top onto the legs. As you know, the way to do this is to make the bench from a continuous piece and then miter the edges. So what he's describing here and what we see in the photo is you've got a um, the, the one leg of the bench goes up. It's a slab. It goes up, whatever it is, uh, 18 inches, right? And then it makes a 90-degree turn, and there's your seat that's maybe, in his case, six feet long. And then... It goes back down with a leg on the other side, right? So it's like one piece of wood that's been bent twice, right? So he says, I'm concerned with the strength of this. Not only is it a miter joint, but my neighbor wants this to be 72 inches long. The boards I'm using are two-inch thick walnut. Should I be concerned with sag? She really does not want a center leg unless it's needed. Also, I'm planning to use slip tenons, dominoes in my case, to reinforce the miters. Will this be sufficient? Am I asking for disaster? Thanks, and keep up the good work. So, well, we kind of had the same thoughts. Go for it, Mike. Yeah, I mean, first off, reinforcing those miter joints is really important. Um, I think dominoes would be great. Get enough dominoes in there, and you basically just have like a big old finger joint, and that should be plenty strong. And if you don't have a domino, you could do we could do big big spline. Big splines. You could glue it up. Um, just glue up that miter joint. Then once it's dried, you can just sort of cut across that joint at an angle and glue in splines. Kind of like how Doug Stowe does his boxes. Sure. Yeah, that'd be fine. Or you can do a hidden spline. That's what I did in my um, the uh, the boxes that hold the drawers in my work, the not-so-big workbench. There's a hidden, uh, there's a spline buried in the miter. Oh, there you go. That stretch, you know, that it, it, it's buried into both miters where they come together. Yeah. So what about the two-inch thick? I'm thinking six feet long, two inches thick. It's probably not going to sag. There might maybe some spring to it if you sit down right in the middle of it, but I don't think you're going to get sag per se. I still, <clears throat> I still, um, my first thought was, um, why can't, so he said center leg. She doesn't want a center leg. Okay, sure. And I could see of that. Course. Yeah. But why can't, you know, you put a stretcher, uh, directly underneath the top or the, the bench part. Uh, imagine a stretcher that's, I don't know, two or maybe two and a half inches um, wide, and then it, it's it's mounted in the center of the bottom of the seat. It stretches from leg to leg. You're not going to see that stretcher unless you get down on your knees and you're like looking at the bench head on with your head a foot off the floor. Yeah, so this is glued, so it's sort of, you know, on edge along right, the center on of the seat. Yep. So it's going to sort of create your little I-beam. Exactly, yeah, and maybe it's, it's uh, you know, mortise and tenon into each leg. That would actually reinforce those uh, minor joints as well. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, that's what I meant. I, I knew that. <laughs> I think that's a really good idea. And to your point, it's going to be invisible unless you're on your hands and knees, you know, trying to pick up your car keys or something like that. I think I would do it just to cover my bases. Yeah. Um, all right, Prashun, uh, more questions whenever you want. You send in good questions. Keep them coming. So uh, next segment of the day, wait for it. This is going to be all-time favorite tool of all time for this week. And um, I went first last time, Mike, so I'm giving this to you. All right. Well, what I really wanted my all-time favorite tool of all time for this week to be is I got two uh, new chisels, Japanese chisels, to add to my 
Oh, you don't have many chisels. Japanese tool collection. Well, I have my base model Japanese chisels. <laughs> then I had one really nice one, no three quarter inch, and then I just added a quarter inch and half inch, uh, the makers Machio Tasai uh, from Japan, and I got them Ooh, from my friend Tomohito from Ooh, Ida Tool. Um, <sighs> anyway, they are awesome, but um, unfortunately, they got beat out by a very lowly tool, and it goes back to Owen's question. I was making this little table, and I was out of some crazy, crazy flame birch and crazy quilted maple. It was a prop in a recent article, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, it, Mark Schofield. It did article. show up in a finishing article. Um, I do like to sneak in pieces of furniture uh, here. The, the, the best, uh, what was it? It was the tool, it was the review on... Uh, on uh, the best wiping varnishes. Right. For wiping. Current issue. Or brushing. Okay. Yes. Um, and... You know, my my hand planes were, you know, God bless them, they they do a good job. But in this case, I did a lot more sanding than I normally do on a piece of furniture. And so my favorite tool of all time for this week is sandpaper. You know what? Push comes to shove. It does a wonderful job. <laughs> sandpaper? sandpaper? This is bad as the time that it was a Ticonderoga number two pencil. Oh, gosh. This yeah. is pathetic. Sandpaper. Yeah. No. Yeah. Give me the lowdown on the P. On the P. <laughs> we always say sand from P one eighty through P four hundred. Yes. Um, yeah. So basically, you know, basically out the wazoo is the answer. I mean, this is like really crazy, curly, curly stuff. So I started. Um, you know, I probably, I, I tried to get my hand planes on it, did some scraping, and, and from there on out, I picked up some sandpaper, probably started at, at 150 on up through, um, I got some stuff. It's probably 2,000 grit sandpaper. Whoa, it's like automotive Yeah, stuff. because maple, um, it, it's such a closed grain wood that really it can benefit by, by going that, and then you get that first coat of finish on there, and bam, yeah. it's just crazy three-dimensional great kind of stuff coming through so yeah you know sometimes you know i love the old hand planes but sandpaper thank you my friend you helped me out well what it now my question i was serious what, give me give me the lowdown on the p system what do you say p and then the grit number what is up with the p what is up with the p yeah it used As to be to the non-p it used to be as you'd say 220 right and now you got p220 same thing well at 220 it's pretty close to the same thing. They're, they're two different grading scales, and they do sort of correspond right about 180 grit or so. As you get finer, the, the P scale tends to be coarser. So um, there's 320 grit sandpaper, but P320 is actually coarser, closer to 240 grit. And if you move up to P600, it's actually closer to 400 grit sandpaper what that we're accustomed to. Um, it's just a European uh, grading no, system for for grits. <laughs> okay, you're gonna get more. Emails. It's probably French. Uh, yeah, good for you. I use Freedom Paper, people. Yeah. So I'm totally joking. <laughs> so the bottom line is the problem is a lot of sandpaper now um, is even if it it's graded in the FIPA or the P scale, um, it's not even identified as such. Got it. You grab a pack of sandpaper, it'll say 600 grit sandpaper. You'll buy it. You'll open it up. It'll say P600 or even worse. It will be P600, but they'll even start to leave out the P. So the bottom line is I, I recommend sanding to a much higher grit now than I used to, and it really has to do with the fact that you're, you're probably using a coarser grit sandpaper than you used to. So okay. there you go. All Sorry. right. Cool.
Um, well, let's uh, let's head on to another question. This one comes from Bill, who writes. Hey, did you have a yeah? you have a favorite tool? Oh my gosh, yes, I did. I'm sorry. That's okay. I, I, uh, I bored you right out of yeah, it. <laughs> you already know what it is. Well, I didn't tell you what it was going to be, but um, so uh, last weekend I uh, went to my favorite. I don't know what to call it. It's like a antique consignment slash junk shop. It's the kind of place that you see on a lot of HGTV shows where it's like huge warehouse full of stuff on two floors, just stacked on top of everything. Like there's a area that's just chairs thrown into a room, antique chairs. There's another area where there's old hand tools. There's all sorts of stuff. It's great. It's awesome. And the guy's very reasonable and he's a nice guy. So I went in there and uh, I often look for hand planes, but usually the the Stanleys and stuff that he gets, you know, the the casting is cracked or there's parts missing. I never saw anything. Right. This time he had a few molding planes and I thought, you know what? I've always wanted to play around with these suckers. So I um, did a few things. I blogged about this, so I won't go into too much detail. But I um, I checked the soles to make sure that the profiles on the on the soles were still crisp. Um, I checked the throat opening to make sure it was you know again all this stuff has to be crisp and not having been overly used so right. that the the pattern has worn away. Um, you know the the irons were in good shape; they weren't too abused. Um, no checks in the end grain, and so I brought it home, and uh, I sharpened the. Uh, I did a whole blog on how I sharpened the profiled blades, sharpened them all up, and man, they are fun. They are so much fun, and I got one that makes this teeny tiny little bead that is so delicate and pretty. Oh, that's cool. I never get that off my router. That's cool. So I'm completely hooked now. Now I understand why Phil Lowe has like 75 molding planes <laughs> in his shop. I don't know if he uses any of them, but um, it's such a cool tool. Yes. Yeah, I don't have a lot. In fact, I have just a couple... Um, smaller beads in two different sizes and the thing i really like and garrett hack sort of showed me about this is that the quirk which is that little the little part of the bead you know that little end part Mm. that little crease yes um however you want to call that the the, crease that's a crease that's a good uh, definition is for router bits just for the strength in terms of, of maintaining the integrity of that carbide bit they tend to be pretty wide right but with molding planes, you can get that little quirk that actually sort of goes down almost to a point. That's why, I, yes, exactly. That, that really fine shadow line between the bead and the flat part of your apron or drawer front or, or drawer stretcher or something like that. And it's a really delicate look that you, it's impossible to get with a machine. And the interesting thing I, you know, I, I was doing a bit of reading because I, I never had used molding planes. Now I'm totally hooked on these things. But, um, a lot of them are referred to, certain types are referred to as sash planes, and I'd always wondered, well, why is that? So mm. uh, if you take um, one of these molding planes that is defined as a sash plane, they have uh, a profile. You, know, you, you start to use it, and that molding, that profile starts to develop in the piece of pine or whatever it is you're, you're cutting. It starts to develop and starts to develop, and then you look at it, and you're like, what does this look like? And I realized, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh, it's, it's like the mutton for a window. Oh, okay. Hence, sash plane okay. for making sashes. So it's it's literally it's got like the cove that goes up, and then all you need to complete it is a rabbit on the back side for the glass panes. Oh, cool. Okay. So I happened to get one that would have been used to make muttons, um, which I just thought was the neatest thing. So I've, now I've got to find some sort of piece of furniture to build that needs glass doors, and I want to make my own muttons. Very cool. And, uh, waste my time uh, doing that, but molding planes. That's it for me. Okay. They're fun. And they're cheap, often. Uh, 
Yes. Um, so here's the next question. It comes from Bill. He writes, I have a friend who may be giving me some cherry logs that he's cut on his property here in Michigan, and it seems like it might be a good way to get some raw lumber. I don't have a chainsaw mill or a large bandsaw capable of resawing large logs, though I hope to get one or both of these in upcoming years. My question, would it be worth taking these logs and storing them until such time as I buy or get access to tools capable of milling them down, or should I pass until I have the right tools? If I keep them, how should I best store them to keep them as usable as possible? I know about sealing the ends to prevent checking, thanks to one of your podcasts, but what else should I, uh, what else do I need to do? Um, I'm never one to pass up anyone. <laughs> it's like, yeah, just put that eight foot diameter log, just set it right down there by the garage. Yeah. My wife won't mind. Um, so what's the deal here? Well, Bill, my apologies because I was supposed to do some research at lunchtime today and Figures. talk to a sawyer Figures. and find out about the whole, how long can you leave a log, a log before you slice it up kind of a thing. And I'm sure there's a really good answer. I don't have it. However, I do have an answer for the rest of the stuff, which is I wouldn't take any log from anybody that I did not have the means to get sliced up into boards. So if I didn't own the equipment yet, what I would do, and I would recommend you do this because I think this is a great learning experience, um, and you get some a lot of lumber for a pretty low price out of it, especially if you're getting the log for free. See if you can track down somebody with a portable bandsaw mill in your area. Like a wood miser. Yeah. I think wood miser has a website. They, you know, that's one brand of the bandsaws and they have a website that you can log on to, I believe, and find people in your area who are willing to come out and saw up some lumber for you for typically pretty nominal charge. Um, These are guys that just oftentimes they just love sawing stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the good thing about someone with a wood miser is unlike a car mechanic who really does not want your help fixing your car, um, if someone's sawing up lumber, chances are they're going to welcome you being right there, helping turn the log, helping stacking boards, all that kind of stuff. And here's the thing is you hire someone with a wood miser, have them come over and saw up the log for you. And then you get a sense of, okay, what is this about? Do I want one of these? Do I want to go through this, this hassle? And if you do, you've already had sort of, you know, a little trial run in a, in a training experience on how to saw up a board from a log. I think that's kind of cool. So see if you can track down, I would say, see if you can definitely track down somebody with a portable bandsaw mill before you say yes to the logs. And then beyond that point, I'd do some research because I would hate to get all these logs and then maybe buy some big old chainsaw stuff and, and sort of be too scared to fire that sucker I say up. just go out there and buy yourself a <laughs> mill, Bill. <laughs> Come on. This is a no-brainer. New tool? No problem. Bill's probably single. Right. Or here's the thing, and I've actually tried this. Um, I had a very brief stint making um, chairs from green wood after taking a class with John Alexander, who literally wrote the book on making a chair from a tree. And, you know, basically for doing that, you can rive wood. So you just get a bunch of wedges mm. and you just start pounding them into the end grain of, Splitting it. of the board. And you just literally, you split the log into boards. And if it's nice straight grain, um, you end up with this really That cool would stuff. be really fun to do, actually, as an experiment, just to sure. see if you can do it. I wonder if you can rive cherry. You know, typically it's, it's done with oak, okay. hickory, you know, things like that. But, um, yeah. That's a real... I'm going to try that someday. Um, all right. 
Next question, it goes from, it's coming from Francis, who writes, I've been making plans for a standalone heated workshop behind my house, and I'm considering end grain woodblock flooring for portions of the shop. I've used end grain flooring, uh, I've worked in a couple of machine shops that used end grain flooring to, among other things, reduce the risk of damaging sharp tooling when dropped, Hmm. while still providing an exceptionally durable floor that's easy on the knees. Are you aware of any historical or contemporary precedent for using end grain block flooring around a hand tool woodworking bench area or around where I might be handling expensive router bits, given the role that species selection, grain orientation, moisture content, acclimatization, and seasonal movement play in such floors? Do you know of any woodworking resources that might share some of the best practices um, and trade secrets? Uh, So I right away, as soon as I read this question, I remembered seeing probably... 15 to 20 years ago, a long time ago, an episode of um, Bob Vila had a show for a while called Home Again, and they actually installed an end grain floor. Hmm. Um, and in that episode, and you can find it on YouTube. Now, it, it was the, their installation technique was, I, I thought, a little questionable because they basically had all these slices of end grain, okay. like little teeny tiny tiles off of, like somebody sawed up a two by four. Yeah. And then they used some sort of a, a mastic to glue it down to the substrate. That's what I was a little bit iffy on. Something flexible to allow those things maybe to Maybe that is a good thing because yeah. I guess mastic is a little bit flexible, isn't it? So maybe that was, that was the right thing. But what I found really cool was then they made their own grout uh, by mixing uh, sawdust with linseed oil hmm. and then grouted it all and then put oil over the whole floor. It looked like a million bucks. I'm it sure it looked gorgeous. Good. It sounds horrendously labor-intensive. Um. I don't know. Well, labor intensive in terms of you're talking small tiles. Yeah. Yeah. In that case. Now, I did more research and I, I did find that um, there are several commercial manufacturers of this type of floor and they sell it in strips. Hmm. Um, but that said, like why? It seems like that's going to be an expensive shop floor. Yeah. Either that or every time you're at the chop saw and you have a little off cut, yeah. glue it into the corner of your floor. <laughs> there you go. It might not be even. You might have to sand it down a little bit. Yeah, you know. That'd be okay. It's a sanding block. Um, I imagine like a, that end grain floor, especially from old timey industrial practices, has got to be incredibly durable in a big industrial setting. I think it would be very long wearing. And um, but I think anything other than concrete mm-hmm. is a huge improvement in terms of dropping your tools. So I think even you had mentioned just OSB plywood. I think yeah, yeah start there, and uh, you know from there if you want to lay down hardwood flooring or something like that. You know, I think it depends how much time you've got and how much time you want to spend on your shop versus in your shop woodworking. You know, it might be kind of a cool experiment. I mean, if he's, if, you know, who knows if he's into this idea, but if you, uh, let's say in theory, you would be gluing down this type of floor to a plywood subfloor. So take a sheet of plywood and I would almost experiment. If I had a whole ton of these cutoffs, I would almost do that mastic experiment and then mix up some, you know, some uh, sawdust and linseed oil, grout it, yeah, and then put it under my whatever my workbench or my router table, and leave it there for a year and see what happens. See if the if the movement through seasonal changes and whatnot, you know, uh, unbuckles the the little tiles or not. Be yeah, neat. it's, it's tough because strip flooring is going to move across its width, mm-hmm. and usually accommodate that with gaps underneath your little uh, trim molding and stuff. But an end grain floor is going to move in both directions mm-hmm. so i remember I the, that the the grout joints 
in that floor that I'd seen, they, they were pretty good-sized joints. And that, that okay. probably had something to do with, with the it. With linseed oil and sawdust, it's, not if too it's, hard. it's probably never going never gonna to harden. Yeah, so it's got some give right. for expansion. That might be what you need. should look that up. I mean, it really was a dynamite-looking floor. It was beautiful. It glowed. Um, well, guys, uh, listen, we get a lot of comments on our page in the iTunes store. And as you well know, every other week I read a few to acknowledge the kind folks who leave words of encouragement and uh, not encouragement up there. So here's the first one for this week from Saney52. Speed Denons, the first and only Shop Talk Live I've listened to. Excellent. Speed Denons are fine. Be wary. Uh, be very aware of what you're doing. Brace your wrists so they are the pivot point and limit the travel your fingers make in the event of a slip. And either lick your fingers yes. or have a damp cloth to moisten them to minimize slipping. See? Someone else licking their fingers. It's a great idea. Keep yes, up the is. good work, yep. guys. Big fan of that. From Bill Van Lu, love it. I really enjoy this podcast. I'm an aspiring woodworker, and it's great. Even though this podcast has topics that are more advanced than I'm ready for, uh, that's okay, Bill, because you, you you can usually kind of take out some golden nuggets even from the more advanced stuff uh from i think i'm reading this handle correctly it's a v numeral eight r tim aviator tim he must be a flyer uh like old friends listening to this podcast is like hanging around in the shop with a couple of old buddies a little bit of humor a little bit of ribbing and a lot of great woodworking info from tools to techniques to shops this one is a great mix i really feel like i've gotten to know the hosts and feel like they could come hang out at my shop anytime nice well cool um Actually, that was uh, sort of the one of the points uh, for the podcast when we conceived of it was sort of trying to fight that, um, you know, fine woodworking used to have this reputation for being like, oh, they're up in that ivory tower. They don't make mistakes. Like, no, we make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> like, let's talk about it. Uh, but anyhow, uh, that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on December 19th for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes and by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com, T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Cheers, everybody. Hey, Ed, it's Matt. They were supposed to do a podcast today, but I'm not going to make it anymore. I'm just really feeling under the weather. I hope that's all right. Talk to you soon.